Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. This is really a time of industry transformation. It's genuine. We operate on the basis of, of long convoluted supply chains here. Does that just not work anymore? Exactly. We like to talk about the digital consumer, but the truth is, you know, it may be a digital consumer, but it's still very much an analog supply chain. Don't compare yourself to the industry. You're going to have to look outside the industry. You really need to be looking at what Apple is doing. What are others doing that may be lessons to uh, change the structure at H&M? Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of the Business of Fashion, and welcome to the BOF podcast. This week, we go inside H&M's $4 billion inventory challenge. It's the subject of a recent case study exclusively for BOF professionals written by Sarah Kent, our sustainability correspondent. Sarah joins John Thorbeck, chairman of Change Capital, and Lauren Sherman, our chief correspondent in New York, to discuss the challenges of inventory facing H&M and a wide range of players within the fashion industry who, because of a gap between what people actually want to buy and what these companies are actually producing, are sitting on greater and greater piles of inventory. And now that it's become completely unacceptable for brands to simply destroy this inventory, it raises the stakes for fashion players to think more carefully about matching supply with demand. So here are Lauren Sherman, Sarah Kent, and John Thorbeck to discuss H&M's $4 billion inventory challenge. So let's get started. I think, I think to start, Sarah, it would be super interesting to hear kind of what the H&M case study is and and how you just walk me through what what you put together because it was a big project it was a big project we we were kind of looking at the industry we were looking at the challenges facing retailers across the industry which i you know i think everyone tuning into this will be aware of the fact that you know across america's malls the europe's high streets retailers are suffering And we were trying to find a way to get at this issue through the lens of 
one company's challenges, but but also a company that has laid out a strategy for how they are going to try and overcome them. And we thought H and M made a really good example for this because it has a very big, very tangible, very measurable pro- problem in the fact that as a result of these retail challenges, its inventory levels have ballooned to a four billion dollar problem. It's very visible. But it's also laid out a strategy for how it wants to over, overcome these issues and reset itself as a retailer that is fit for purpose in a modern digital age. Um, and so what we did was we dove into over the last four or five years how that strategy has played out, how the company has done so far, and what it has still to do. And what we found is that. You know the solutions H and M is coming up with are are not rocket science. You know, like make sure your online platform is fit for purpose that you can sell online. Make sure your logistics can work both for brick and mortar and online. Make sure your designs and your stores are things that customers want to buy and invest for the future. So look at opportunities in AI. Look at opportunities in technology. So that's what they're doing. They've made some progress.、Uh, sales are improving,、um, but they're not there yet. The inventory levels are still very high, and it's you know you need to give them more time to see how this will play out. So, John, you are very famous, at least at, at the BOF offices, for this report you <laughs> did. I believe it's called the Zara Gap analysis, or or something to that.、Um, Something similar to that, and it's essentially talking about Zara's supply chain and inventory management, and how how that company kind of is is far ahead of competitors. And and it, over the years, as you and I have talked, it seems like really there have been few competitors that have started to adopt similar ways of managing inventory and and such. So I'm I'm curious to know from your perspective after reading over the case study and and everything that Sarah went through, what do you think H and M's fundamental problem is, and how does that speak to the bigger problems facing the industry right now? Okay, Lauren, thank you, and thank you, Sarah. The case、um, is really well done, and I think it's well stated. That it reflects more than a firm's challenges. It really says something. It's, a, it's one of the few global retailers, and so I think they uh, represent uh, an industry challenge. I might also mention we. This case has a lot of echoes of language and challenges. You know, we've been hearing for a decade. So、uh, you know, we sh- we can come back to that. But you know, Gap, Marks and Spencer, Macy's, Ralph Lauren. Um, they've all spoke these words and tried to be reassuring about their ability to execute.、Um, and I think one of the questions that comes out of the case is not only what are the prospects for H and M, but why have so few、uh, been able to,、um, uh, you know, show much progress,、um, you know, in in issues of speed and flexibility. We say that not just as observers, but the Zara gap, which is a reference to the gap between Zara and everyone else. What explains the difference in their performance? And is it just simply that they are faster and better?、Um, is it just that they have fresher fashion more often? Um, and uh, uh, 
uh, you know, a higher inventory turn? Well, it turns out that really is, doesn't explain it. So the idea behind this work, which was based at Stanford, was can you measure the link of supply flexibility directly to market valuation? So these were metrics for speed, and those metrics are relatively new because speed has only become a premium concern for retailers and investors in maybe the last you know, five or seven years. Now it's the primary concern and metric, and every firm must demonstrate that. So what's going on here with H&M? Um, well, I'll give you my short view. It's almost like, Lauren, you're saying, Don, why don't you open the case? So, you know, what's going on here? Uh, certainly it's significant in 2009 that um, uh, there's a new CEO, and this CEO is from the family. He's third generation, but he's 33 years old. And things seem to be okay from 2009 to 2012. But, you know, the previous CEO had been a longtime employee, worked uh, almost until he was 70 years old. Let's not forget that uh, Stefan Larson uh, left um, in 2011. Uh, and I find it interesting that the concerns really started in 2012 when sales began to moderate, working capital took a nosedive, and certainly inventory turns uh, were much worse. So at that time, H&M's uh, kind of going into the eye of the storm they survived, okay, the financial crisis, but they're investing heavily in store expansion, particularly in China and the U.S., uh, two of the most expensive global um, markets. And so, uh, you know, really what they have is a doubling down strategy on this democracy of fashion idea and culture that they represent. Uh, but at the same time, they've shifted a lot of sourcing you know, over to Asia. They were 50% in Asia in 2000, they were 70% in 2012, and now they're pushing 80%. So they're looking to expand, but they're also looking to do it on the uh, sourcing advantages of the low-cost countries, um, you know, in, 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 in the world. And now this case is telling us about new investments in logistics and stores and IT and particularly in data and artificial intelligence. And we know they've also been investing in sustainability, even though the value of that really isn't clear. Um, so I guess I have to ask what's changed here. They're doubling down. There's a lot of spending. Um, they're still sitting on an enormous um, a, a, a amount of inventory. Uh, sales have moderated. Obviously, profit margin is down. Uh, this this is uh, this is troubling. And yet, we're hearing what is looking like a decade-long story, even though the language here is is intended to be very very reassuring. So I, I'm I'm actually finding a hard hook here uh, to be positive. And I guess if you want me to sort of close this opening or put it down to a few words that you can react to, I would say the problem here is the purpose of the company. Uh, they're, they're doubling down on cheap chic, on the democracy of fashion. A lot of people have entered that. Um, they are, uh, so I think the issues here are, are purpose and especially the pipeline. I think they've actually lost flexibility and speed, not gained it. 
And I think they're still counting too heavily on a, uh, on a product turnaround. Bottom line, what does this lead to? I think this amount of spending and sort of loss of flexibility uh, is a capital issue. And, and I think it's, it's actually closely related to a, uh, what I might even call a cultural crisis here. Uh, I think they have a severe uh, challenge. So didn't mean to be long-winded, but um, there's a lot going on at H&M and uh, all the competition that surrounds them. Uh, lots to think about. What what do you think about John's reaction? I think that's a very interesting analysis. But and I'd like to follow that up, John. By all, you know, from your perspective, then is the key thing that that H and M and indeed all retailers should be focusing on now before anything else: speed to market, efficiency, and speed to market. Is that the underlying solution that you see for weathering the current shifts in retail? Speed has to be. Um, a primary asset and capability. And, but you also have to understand what speed is. You know, speed isn't just getting product faster to market. Speed is a way to reduce cost and in particular to reduce risk. So what I don't see in all of this investment is what are they doing to reduce cost, which is very hard to do. Uh, but more importantly, what are they doing to reduce risk? And the costs of risk are not just a high inventory. The costs of risk are really reflected in uh, high markdowns and another metric that very few people talk about, which is the lost sale. And so the cost of markdowns and lost sale is a consequence of, you know, uh, not having speed. Speed is more than just being trendy. Uh, it really is related to um, the, you know, the risk, the, the capital that's at risk um, in, in, a, in a supply chain. So yes, speed is primary, and I, I don't see that they've invested in it, other than um, uh, in what people refer to as last mile. Obviously, they're concerned about being uh, able to respond to their stores. They invested in warehouses, so they're concerned about the last mile, the ability to reach that online customer to deliver on store. Uh, but the total supply chain looks longer and less flexible to me. Is that not just a very traditional model for fashion anyway? Historically, you know, this, we, we, we operate on the basis of, of long convoluted supply chains here. Does that just not work anymore? Exactly. So it's a very digital world and we like to talk about the digital consumer uh, and the connected consumer. And of course we want uh, more digital connection throughout our operations. But the truth is, um, you know, it may be a digital consumer, but it's still very much an analog supply chain depending on lowest cost countries and long lead times shipping by sea. And that, that digital analog divide uh, is costly and I think you can directly attribute that $4 billion inventory to that divide. It's, it's interesting because, you know, there's so much uh, political discourse in the moment, at the moment that could affect many of the countries that operators like H&M rely on for manufacturing. You look at, you know, the prospect for more tariffs on China. You look at Cambodia, um, Vietnam. How do you see that kind of political risk and how it could reshape 
the way we manufacture, whether it has the potential to force companies to rethink their supply chain in a way they haven't yet. Right. So that's part of, you know, globalizing the idea that you can really source anywhere. And um, I think that is, so it's, a, it's sort of the endless search for low cost, but I call that the high cost of low cost. And when I say lowest cost, um, um, you know, it may sound like, um, you know, an asset, but it, there's a cost to being uh, slow and being in 12 month design cycles and six and nine month delivery cycles. So actually being able to quantify speed is very important. And you have to look at that as more than just, you know, cost of goods sold. Uh, Zara is a contrast. Zara, Zara is 40, 50%, you know, sourced either through their own factories. They own 13 factories in Spain. Um, and they're doing a lot of sourcing in Southern Europe, in Northern Africa. Um, and so they have more of a balance, um, but H&M doesn't have that. And um, I think that that's, they're either going to have to globalize their speed out of Asia, or they're going to have to have a higher component closer to home. What's interesting is that may be higher cost, but it saves on the uh, markdown and stock outside. So it more than pays for itself. Sarah, what did you find that H&M is trying to do? To, to fix the inventory problem. They're not doing what John says they should be doing. So what are they doing? So they are investing heavily, which, which I think is interesting because um, you, know, you don't always see people putting money behind their strategies. Often people want a quick fix, but H&M has, you know, it's still got a lot of, uh, the, you know, the family that founded it still owns a large proportion of it. It is able to take a long-term perspective and it's making long-term investments. So first up, it is investing heavily in its online platform, making uh, digital consumption more a better experience for consumers, allowing people to shop online in response to changing consumer habits. It's focusing a lot on its designs, which I think, you know, fundamentally, people want to like what they're buying. That's the bottom line. Your designs have to be good. And, and there's no denying that, H&M was not as on trend for a period of time. And so they are trying to fix that. That was a big problem. They're trying to make the in-store experience much, much better, make the stores feel more up market, similar to what many other retailers are trying to do. Then, John, to your point about uh, last mile invest investments, they are trying to make their logistics platform much more streamlined, much more integrated, again, make it an easier shopping experience. And finally, they, they are investing in advanced analytics to better predict trends and better understand what consumers want. And John, you're absolutely right. This, this is not focused on the supply chain, which is perhaps a weak link for many in the industry. Um, but I do think, you know, if, if they, they, these are big investments and changes they are trying to make that that could have a tangible impact. Right. And, you know, but all of those things are added cost. Every one of the ones you mentioned, um, you know, investment in logistics, investment in online platform, investment in uh, the store experience, investment in AI and more personalized, closer relationship uh, with, uh, with, with a, a customer and, and the database. All of those are, are uh, very valuable, but they all add cost. And so, and, and not one of them um, is, 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 is really related to 
um, you know, reducing, uh, you know, total risk. So putting that down to basically a soundbite, they're trying to sell their way out of uh, this problem, which doesn't surprise me because that's the culture, which is, you know, we believe in design, we believe in product, we believe in fashion. And if we hit it right, um, that will solve our problems. I think that's an outdated uh, uh, view. And uh, I, I, I don't actually think that qualifies as a strategy. But I think as a retailer that's managing the things you can control, unless you're an integrated player that, you know, as you mentioned, Zara owns a portion of its supply chain and its manufacturers, but by no means all or most of them. But unless you want to fully integrate, you, you can't control that aspect of your supply chain. You, you can certainly shift where you're sourcing from and only source from the most efficient factories. And, but the, you know, all of the companies change their, their manufacturers all the time. They're constantly looking for the best deal. Uh, right. And that's part of the problem. And, uh, and they're searching for, you know, best price at, you know, a certain quality. And I think they're underestimating the uh, power of supplier partnerships here. So I think your leading retailers, those who are performing better, are actually streamlining to fewer and larger suppliers, but they're aligning, you know, they want speed and flexibility too. And I think you have to, you can't just focus on the X factory cost. You really have to show that speed benefits uh, all partners in the supply chain. And I think there's a lot of untapped economics that can be shared. So our formula for that is speed plus shared value actually equals social impact. End-to-end -end view. Not, it's not a single point of view. What does that look like? I mean, should we see retailers forming more long-term partnerships with manufacturers, you know, becoming more reliant on each other, guaranteeing a certain degree of, of manufacturing capacity? Is that what we yes. need to start seeing? That, yes, that's exactly right. Instead of saying, I want this price and I want this volume, we should be saying, okay, how can we get closer to season? How can we reduce finished goods? How can we postpone our finished goods decisions so that we have in-season flexibility? Um, these are techniques that very few retailers have adopted. And unfortunately, one of the reasons is, is um, those models really come from outside the industry. Um, you know, when if we have time and we get to a point where you say, well, okay, what should H&M do? I think the number one thing I would certainly say is uh, don't compare yourself to the industry. You're going to have to look outside the industry. You really need to be looking at what Apple is doing. What is Amazon doing? What are others doing that may be lessons um, to uh, change the structure at H&M? Well, that's a really interesting point, particularly when you mention Amazon, because Amazon is coming for the fashion industry. Uh, so I guess in that sense, you're absolutely on the money. The industry needs to start seeing those, those players as competitors. Well, the, other, the thing that sort of baffles me is you can see the success of companies that are adopting the model that, that you're suggesting, John, and, and their competitors can see their success. Why aren't they 
mimicking it or tr I know some I know that there has been progress with some retailers but why isn't everyone doing this is it because everyone wants a shortcut and it comes to like upfront um sales or or is there if H&M is thinking long term why isn't supply ch chain part of that conversation uh, well that's an excellent question and uh why why is it that gap um is was 16 billion 10 years ago and is still 16 billion today. Um, why is it that Marks and Spencer is still struggling um, with its um, you know apparel business and struggling to maintain what at one point was you know a dominant share? So there's something about this that is more than simply strategy and operations. And it's really a cultural issue. Um, and I don't think this is about uh, technology I, I, um, or, or simply strategy or the latest uh, CEO. Gap itself has gone through four CEOs who have failed to, um, you know, uh, move that company forward. So this, it's, a, it's a great question and it's something deeper. A fellow at Harvard Business School is looking at this, a guy named John Wells. And he asked, why do firms fail? And um, you know, he calls it something called structural IQ. And, uh, you know, do you have an ability to really change the structure of your company in the kind of, uh, you know, transforming industry, you know, that we're in right now? And, and um, I, I think that's, you know, a, a question here. All of the language in this case is language that other retailers are using. And it's the language of parity. I want to be equal to the leaders in this industry, but it's not the language of leadership. And really, uh, language of parity, I think, is um, you know, not, not going to be acceptable. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com Wondersuite. You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person, too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. <coughs> Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash BOF, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash BOF to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash BOF. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff, with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realise that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. I would say in H&M's defense, um, whilst the core of its strategy is focused on the aspects it can control, it is looking at the supply chain. I think part of the challenge for it and many players in the industry is that Historically, the supply chain has been very opaque. And until issues of sustainability and ethics became a much larger part of the agenda, many companies didn't fully understand their supply chain or know where things came from. So getting to a point where you can work more in partnership with your manufacturers is a huge task that requires unpicking Um, infrastructure that has built up over years when people weren't really paying close attention. So that that in and of itself is a very big task with a lot of costs associated with it. That's an excellent point. And H&M was definitely a leader in in sustainability. And I think um, uh, the the CEO is personally uh, committed to that. Um, But, um, you know, a concern about that is they've really not been able to show commercial value of that, uh, number one. Uh, number two, it, uh, I don't think they've really taken it on as the brand identity uh, that it could be. And number three, I think Zara's announcement just two weeks ago um, has stolen the march. And I think they have a more cohesive uh, culture with clearer goals. Um, and I think H&M um, uh, now has to uh, you know, share that uh, identity as who is going to be, you know, the most sustainable. But I do think that that is key to what is exciting about the industry is this isn't about individual turnarounds. It's really about an industry that's reinventing itself and doing it um, um, with sustainability um, as a source of value and not just simply a way of doing business. So we're going to open up to audience questions soon, but I, I did want to ask about overstoring and, and maybe that's a cosmetic problem to you, John, I'm not sure, but it is interesting to me that 
whether or not Zara is overstored as well, I'm I'm not sure in the U.S. But H and M is overstored. Obviously, Gap was over. They probably still are overstored. That seems to be where this all started when they really started just flooding the market with stores on every corner. How do you fix that when there's leasing involved? How do you kind of backtrack over storing when you just started 10 years ago? All these fast fashion retailers didn't really have a presence in the U.S. I mean, now, oh, my God, it's almost 20 years ago. I feel very old. But I think H&M came to uh, the U.S. in the early 2000s. So how much is overstoring and part of this inventory issue and... how do you backtrack on that when there's leases involved and all of that? Big problem. And uh, what happened in uh, 2009 was this investment in large H&M stores was in U.S. and China. Um, You know, generally when you start leasing and you're an attractive retailer, you get a sort of a five-year deal. But after five years, the costs, uh, you know, begin to rise. So I would say H&M has found itself in a high cost position with stores definitely overstored um, in the U.S. um, And China is just simply a long-term investment. That's really in contrast to Zara. Zara has less than 100 stores in the U.S. And they always viewed it as not just overstored, but overpriced. So they have avoided a high cost um, and have concentrated um, elsewhere in the world. So I think H&M, like I say, sort of doubled down at about the wrong time. I mean, I think that is a challenge that Zara is facing, too. And they've also noted that they're going to shrink their store footprint and suddenly slow down their growth of uh, brick and mortar spaces and, and, and rationalize where they are. So I wouldn't necessarily characterize this as a problem that, that is one that H&M has and Zara doesn't. Yeah, Um uh, that's true, but I think that's more of a, a matter of balance. And, uh, you know, they're um, at a time, remember what drives speed for, for Zara at a time when H&M is going from 90 days inventory to 140, um, you know, um, that hasn't happened at Zara. So, you know, their ability to uh, control, um, you know, their working capital and be still a generator rather than a user of working capital um, is a vast difference between them and the other fast fashion retailers. One of my key points is always that fast fashion, not a single thing. There's a variety of performers uh, on a continuum and by no means are they all the same, including the difference between it um, and, and Zara. You know, what we've been talking a lot about upstream, but going, I guess, really far downstream and thinking about the resale market and how that, I know H&M has started doing second, selling secondhand products in some of their stores in, in Sweden. Curious to know, Sarah, what you think about that end of the market. And you, do you feel like the inventory problem in some ways will be sorted out by the secondhand market or balanced out by it or, or what have you? I don't think it's a panacea. This is, this is not something that, that solves companies' inventory problems, yeah. but it is, 
it is a new source of revenue and a way to monetize overstock that doesn't involve uh, steep discounts within your main store, which drives people, you know, that, that gets people into this discounting mindset where you just wait for the sales and you don't, you're not willing to buy things full price. It shifts the narrative. It also creates a new revenue stream for companies, particularly at a time when they are talking more about sustainability. Many of them are beginning to look at ways to take back clothes. You know, you, you can monetize that. You can donate some, but you, that is also a revenue stream. So why give that up? Yeah, yeah. John, do you have any thoughts on the secondhand market and how it plays into all of this? Yeah, I think that's part of the cause. I, I think they need, uh, if they want to be sustainability, they want to make that part of the brand identity. Um, you know, they need to do a better job with the, you know, 15, 20-year-old customer. Their, their customer 10 years ago was 30 years old with two, two children. And that younger customer is, um, you know, more driven by these issues of sustainability, transparency, um, you know, ethical sourcing. Um, I, I think that that uh, sort of uh, marketing the cause, um, you know, as a part of this inventory drawdown is very, very important. So, yes, I think they need to embrace those, train, those trends. I'm curious to know from both of you, just in terms of excess inventory, what is happening to a lot of this inventory at this point? For years, you know, there would be reports of companies burning product or what have you. But generally, what is is this inventory just being sold till it gets marked down till it gets sold? What what are they doing with the excess inventory that they have now? Not only H&M, but generally in the industry, what are the different avenues for kind of disposing of inventory? Funnily enough, that's not something that companies go into a great deal of detail about. Um, Certainly, um, burning excess inventory now comes with a great deal of reputational risk. You know, I think a lot of companies would not do that anymore when they might have done in the past, particularly after uh, last year, Burberry got called out so much for, for having burn a large volume of clothes. And in France now, there's talk about actually putting in a regulatory ban on the practice. Um, But, you know, there are other avenues, discounts, resale, just holding the stock for a period of time until you can, you know, maybe bring it back into circulation. John, what do you think? Well, it's, this would be an intense effort. And uh, not only are they trying to bleed it out, and I think it's actually responsible for the sales increase um, is, you know, I think the discounting is buying sales growth and they're trying to do their best, you know, through the, uh, through the stores, but there's also secondary channels, uh, and sell-offs. Uh, this would be an intense behind the scenes effort trying to do it. Um, so it doesn't do, uh, you know, reputational, uh, damage. Uh, but unfortunately it contributes to this now image of discounting um, and it is going to do damage to the brand. And I think part of what the strategy is going to have to be is um, uh, there's going to have to be some rebranding going on and some fresh new product coming in because uh, it's now being offered at, a, you know, at discount levels on a constant basis. And that overhang is going to take a long, long time if they continue with that strategy. Uh, I think they have to take the full hard medicine as soon as possible. 
Well, I, I mean, I do think one thing that, that was a measure of success for H&M is that they have reduced the extent to which they're a, they need discount. They, they've managed to bring down the discounts they're putting in place while stock levels are still elevated. You know, one thing they talk about a lot that they believe is that the quality of the stock they have is better than it was. So they, they believe they will be able to now manage that stock level lower in a way that is less painful. Whether that is the case, we will see over the coming months. Right. Um, lots of reason to be skeptical there. And when you have $4 billion on their balance sheet, you can imagine how much is behind it um, in their pipeline, in their suppliers, uh, uh, that is not on their balance sheet. So it is a, you know, a severe issue. Um, and, um, you know, improving full price sales I, I, my guess is markdowns are hard to find in a financial statement. Uh, my guess is that their markdowns more than doubled uh, since 2012. Um, and I'd have to do more work to find that, but that's not some, that, those are not headlines that uh, a retailer likes to share. Probably true for every single retailer doing business in the U.S., right? That's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> One thing we haven't talked a lot about is AI and data. And Sarah, I'm curious to know what H&M's strategy around that. They're doing a lot with AI, right? They're doing right? a lot with AI. And, it, you know, AI is a very interesting opportunity for the fashion, well, globally for all industries, how we, we have so much data now, how we use it, how we analyze it. There is huge potential there, but it's also very tricky. It's a new technology. It's not really clear what, what, what is feasible still. So H&M has a lot of ambitions. It's piloting a lot of different things at the moment. Um, really where it sees the most immediate opportunity is in not kind of, um, you know, really futuristic artificial intelligence, but just advanced data analytics. So taking the information it has about all of its stores, understanding how people shop in a given location, understanding how the weather that week is going to affect that store, understanding, you know, like if there is a specific store in a particular part of London where you know for some reason someone who is a very unusual size, like an XXS, uh, comes in regularly and buys one item in that size, can you make sure that you are catering to them? So it's, it's having a kind of local but global approach and using your analytics to allow you to do that, using your data to allow you to do that. Right. Um, so we've spoken about a capital issue. The spending that's going on here is not sustainable until they get some significant results. But the second part of that is cultural. And I think a huge red flag in this case, Sari did a nice job of, of quoting on the AI side. To me, that is cultural conflict. The fact that you have an AI person who is being a voice of the company is, I think, it's got to be a severe conflict with the design team and design inside. I think most retailers will tell you that predictive analytics is immature at best. Uh, trend information we can get from uh, a number of new uh, uh, companies. You certainly get it from Google Trends. Uh, so knowing the customer, knowing what's selling, I'm not sure that's turned anybody around. 
Um, and it certainly um, um, is a hard case to make that it's differentiated in any way. So again, it's back to the issue of agility. If you know what somebody wants and you can show the trends of 17 different washes of denim, denim and you know the ranking of how each one sells, what value does that give you if you don't have the speed and flexibility to respond to it? So again, it's this digital analog um, uh, you know, divide, and I think the, the limitations for AI, it sounds so good, but it's, it's, it's severely limited, and really no one else, no one has raised a victory flag on this and won't for a long time. I think that's a fair point around the challenges, and, and I think that's something that the company is quite cognizant of, but I'd, I'd also raise the point that the industry as a whole was really caught asleep at the wheel by the digital revolution um, and, and by the rise of online shopping. And I think that looking at the technologies that are immature today, but maybe hugely significant in five to 10 years time and trying to make sure that you have the expertise and the in-house capabilities now is a smart move to make sure that culturally and technologically you are ready. Yes, it's a very smart move and it's essential, but everybody's doing it. And there's two ways to do it. You can build it or buy it. And I think that um, in a catch-up mode, what H&M is doing is they're buying that capability and trying to bring it into their culture. That's very difficult. That's in contrast to what, for instance, happens at Inditex, where they invest side by side in research at MIT. And so what they're interested in is going direct to the source and creating proprietary capabilities rather than buying something on the market. So I agree with you. Everybody has to invest and do it aggressively for the future. Um, but the prospects of getting a return on it, um, I, it's very hard to build your case on it right now. Well, thank you, John, so much for participating. Thank you to Sarah for creating such an incredible and writing such an incredible case study. And thank you to the BOF team and for everyone who helped us out on this. Bye. If you enjoyed this conversation, you might also be interested in joining BOF's global membership community, BOF Professional. Our members receive exclusive deep dive analysis in our Daily Digest email, as well as unlimited access to our archive of over 10,000 articles, our new iPhone app, special print issues, and all of our online courses and learning materials from BOF Education. For a limited time only, we are offering our podcast listeners an exclusive 25% discount on your first year of an annual BOF Professional membership. To get this special offer, click on the link in the episode notes, select the annual package, and enter the special code PODCAST2019 at checkout. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please leave us a rating if you did, and don't forget to share it with your friends. 
a one-on-one conversation, a chance meeting in the gym, or a coffee shop. So go on, give it a try. With over hundreds of thousands of listens a month, your person is probably here. Get closer to your audience. Make podcast ads with Acast. Head to go.acast.com to get started.